You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, well, good morning. I am Josh Brown, and uh, I served here from 2013 till the end of 2019, for those of you that don't remember me. Uh, we planted a daughter church out of this church that meets at the Journey Museum. They're worshiping right now. And so far, I haven't gotten any texts or calls, so they must be doing all right. Uh, but your daughter church is 22 months old, so we're almost to the terrible twos. We're uh, running around putting things in our mouth and uh, got to try to guard us from the stairs and those kinds of things. And so, um, but God has been very gracious to us. There's probably around 70 or 80 of us gathered over there right now. Um, about 38 or so members, and then those 38 members have about 35 kids, and then there's other folks that are joining our church, and for a total of about 130 people that we're ministering to in the life of our body. We've got people who are not Christians that are considering Christianity. We've got some who've recently come to faith and are considering baptism, and then I just this morning had eight in a membership class with me, and we just finished up our membership class, and I think many of those will then apply and, and be brought into the membership of our church. So uh, thank you for your support of our church. You give financially to us every month. I don't know if you know that, but you do. And we're grateful for it, and God has been so kind to us. So just a quick report uh, on us. We're doing great. Thank you for praying for us, and thanks for being such great parent, a great parent church. So we're grateful for that. Thank you. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open up to Philippians chapter 3. I think it's page 981 in the Pew Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible with you, not to worry. Uh, there are blue ones underneath the chairs there. I think that you can open up. And uh, I, I, about a month ago, a friend of mine took me uh, out to lunch at Outback Steakhouse and uh, asked me a question that has just been kind of stuck in my mind for a while. We're sitting there at the booth looking at the menu, and he goes, What do you want? And uh, I was thinking, I think I might get the 8-inch sirloin with, uh, with fries and maybe a Coke. And he's like, no, that's not what I mean. It's like, what, what do you want? What do you want to accomplish in your ministry? What do you want from life? And uh, really the aim was if, if someone were to come up in your church and for pastor appreciation was just to take one thing that you wanted and just make it happen, what would it be? And I hemmed and hawed for about 45 minutes because I didn't have a good answer to that question. What do I want? I, I do want the 8-ounce steak. Uh, I also want to be a better dad. I want to be a more attentive husband. I want to be a more effective pastor. I want more encouragement and less criticism. I want, to be, I want everything that I touch to turn to gold. I want gas to be cheaper, and I want the Denver Broncos to be good at football. Those are the things I want, right? Those are the things I want. And I've just been pondering that question of, of I just get in the routine of doing the things that are required of me or the things that other people expect of me that I, I don't often sit and just think, what is it that I want? What motivates me? What, is, what, in, what, what, what brings me forward? What do I delight in and have confidence in? What do I desire for myself, for my family, for my church? And uh, so I spent a Saturday not too long ago just sitting on my porch thinking, what do I want? What do I want um, from my life? What do I want my days to look like? What kind of health do I want to be in? And I just sat on a notebook, and just before God in prayer, it was just honest. What are the wants that I have that are kind of sinful? They're just from the flesh. And what things are really good and glorious and, and important? What things are good desires that I need to be more disciplined in? What are things that I need to just ask other people's help for? And so that question of, of what do you want, uh, is, as I think at, uh, at least at part, of 
what is going on in our text here today. And I think if we were to go to Paul and we were to ask him, what is it that you want, Paul? Like, what's the one thing that you have to have? The one thing above all other wants that you want more than anything else. And I think his answer would be pretty quick. I didn't have a quick answer in the moment. I'm still not sure I have a great answer, but I think Paul gives us the answer that he would have. And I think what he wants this Philippian church to have. And that is, I want to know Christ. I want Christ. That's what I want. And so if you would look at Philippians 3, 1 through 11, I think this is Paul's response to what is it that you want, Paul? And what is it that you want these Philippians to want, Paul? And what is it that you want South Canyon Baptist to want, Paul? So let's look at Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Oh, Father, we come before you and we come before your word with our hearts and our minds wide open to receive whatever it is that you would want to speak to us today. God, we pray that you would transform our hearts to want you above all other things. And then, God, we pray that after you have created that want in us, that you would satisfy that want with yourself, that we may rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of our message is The Knowing Christ Church, because that's really at the heart of what this is about. And I want to give you the bottom line right out of the gate. This is the bottom line. So if you tune out on me after this sentence, I totally understand. And that's okay because you're going to get the gist of it. I'm just going to unpack this. So we've read the scriptures. You're going to get the bottom line. I can't improve on that, but I'm going to try to explain it. Bottom line right here that I want you to walk away with is that rejoicing in the Lord together is your supreme purpose. Rejoicing in the Lord together is your supreme purpose. That's true for you individually. That's God's intention for you individually, but it's also God's intention for you together. Uh, think, about, think about heaven for a moment. Heaven is a place of rejoicing in the Lord together. And when God calls his church around the confession of Jesus Christ being Lord, it is a gathering of people who are rejoicing in the Lord together. And you have this little glimpse of heaven on earth. The purpose of everything in the universe is to glorify God. And you get the distinct privilege of being able to do so 
with great passion and attention and affection and person, personality. You get a relationship with God. So rejoicing in the Lord together is your supreme purpose. I think I could argue from Genesis to Revelation that that is the point of the Bible. In Genesis 1, <clears throat> God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in that is a call to rejoice in me and all that I've made. Be creative and procreate and enjoy all of the good gifts that I've given you. Rejoice in me in all of the ways that you can imagine. In Genesis 3, obviously, the one prohibition, the one way to get out of this rejoicing in the Lord is to rejoice in yourself, to, to deny me, to, de, to, to rebel against me. And that's at the heart of Satan. Satan's temptation of Eve was creating a desire in Eve to, do, to rejoice in herself. If you eat of this fruit, then you'll be like God and you can rejoice in yourself as opposed to rejoicing in the Lord. And everything broke at that point. Because rejoicing, we're all worshipers at heart. We're all desirers at heart. We're all wanters at heart. And anything other than God will leave us wanting. And that's the situation we've all been born in. Is that we no longer rejoice in God as we ought and everything gets broken because nothing can bear the weight of our souls. So we sin. And we pursue everything but God. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Which is himself, right? If you desire him, he'll then satisfy your heart with himself. Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about his kingdom, he talks about blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word for blessed could be translated happy or satisfied is the one who is poor in spirit because all he has is God, which is all. He has his wants met, has his needs met. And then you go to the very last page of the Bible, one of the last few sentences is the spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty, who wants, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So at the heart of the Bible is this desire that we have for God and that God intends to satisfy it for himself in Christ. Theologians down through, her, through history have talked about this too. Augustine, perhaps the greatest theologian who ever lived, says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in the 1600s starts with this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the whole purpose of existence. That's what you're made for. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it does not exist. There is no such thing as happiness and peace apart from God. And even John Piper recently has said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So my point in sharing all that is that you can go inside the Bible, you can go outside the Bible, you can just look around you and know that we are a wanting, worshiping people who are looking for something. You look in the news, you, look, you watch other people, you watch your coworkers, and we're all trying to satisfy something in us. We want something. And we haven't found the thing that satisfies. <clears throat> and Paul says, I've found it. I've found the thing that satisfies. That's the driving theme of this letter is to rejoice in the Lord. In the first two chapters, he's given an update that he's in prison, that he's got opponents that are preaching the gospel, that are trying to hurt him, and yet he rejoices to live as Christ and to die as gain. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison or be put to death. And in some sense, he doesn't really care because he still has Christ. No one has been able to take Christ from him. And in chapter 2, he unfolds the beauty of Christ 
how glorious he is that he came from heaven and he descended down to earth and he took on human flesh and he bore our sins on the tree on the cross and he died and he rose again and he he, uh, ascended into heaven and is now going to be the one who receives all worship and glory and rejoicing from all people. And then he comes down to chapter 3, verse 1. This is his point. Finally, he's like, all of this that I have been telling you, that you guys have been heard preached for you, drives to this one point. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the point. That's the point of everything. He's going to come back to that in chapter 4. If you were to read chapters 1 and 2 again, and just look for synonyms of rejoicing. You would see that he's been talking about this for a while, but now he just gets explicit. Like, everything funnels down to this one point. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is who you want. And through the gospel, you can have him. And when you want something, and then you get it, you rejoice. Right? I really want a bacon cheeseburger. And I go and I eat a cheeseburger. And I go, that was awesome. I rejoice. I mean, we have this. You know, the, the woman that wants to get married and she can't wait and then I'm going to do a wedding actually in just a couple, couple weeks for this couple that's been so longing. They want to be married and they can't wait and they've been waiting and now we're going to have a great celebration in a couple weeks and they're going to rejoice and we're going to rejoice together because their wants are being satisfied on that level and just multiply that times a, a million and you get to the human heart that finds Christ and then rejoices rejoices. We've talked about gospel partnership in this series. That flows from rejoicing in the Lord. When you rejoice in the Lord, then you want to partner with others who are rejoicing in the Lord, which then just multiplies the rejoicing in the Lord, right? That's why you as an individual Christian should join a church. It's because now your rejoicing of the Lord is multiplied among others. It's why you would want to send a church plant out, Because you want people that are not yet rejoicing in the Lord to rejoice in the Lord. And then when you hear reports back, like I just shared with you, of how more people are rejoicing in the Lord than if you hadn't sent us out, and now you rejoiced, you clapped, at least a couple of you did. Rejoicing in the Lord results in partnership in the gospel, which just results in more rejoicing in the Lord. And so it goes, and so it goes, on and on and on, ever increasing, forever. So if this is true, if my thesis is true, Rejoicing in the Lord together is your supreme purpose, then you need to guard it. You need to nurture it as the most important thing. So I have a few just exhortations for you from the text. If rejoicing in the Lord together is your supreme purpose as an individual and as a body, then here's some things you need to do from the text. Number one, you need relentless reminders. Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and safe for you. Which tells us that everything in this letter is stuff he's taught them before. There's nothing new in here, but they need to hear it again. Because the gospel is like oxygen. It's not like when you're born and the doctor smacks you on the behind and you breathe that first breath and start crying. It's like, well, they're good now. No, the whole point of being alive is you continue to breathe, right? If you ever stop breathing, you die. And that's true of the gospel. You need to hear the gospel again and again, the work of Christ daily or else you'll start to go brain dead. You'll start to lose oxygen. You'll start to revert back to the dead state that you were before. And Paul knows that. He's like, I don't mind giving you oxygen again. I don't mind teaching you the elementary truths of the gospel again. We are so prone to wander 
prone to leave the God we love. So be a church that is relentless on reminding one another of the basics. Don't assume. And don't get impatient. Just about the time you're sick of hearing it is about the time that you probably needed to start hearing it. You're probably finally starting to get it. The finished work of Christ. That God in heaven would be like that. That he would send his son for his enemies. That his son would come and, and, and not be born in a palace, but born in a stable. That shepherds, lowly shepherds, would get be, be the first ones to encounter him. That he would walk among the poor and the destitute, the broken. That he would come, not because the healthy need a doctor, but the sick do. He hangs out with sinners and he heals diseases and he conquers demons. He lives a perfect life and he challenges all the systems that are robbing God of the glory that he deserves. And then he goes to the cross for sinners. To bear the wrath of God against sinners. And then he's put in the grave. The eternal God is dead and rises again so that sinners might be brought into his presence. And now he's king. He is interceding for you right now, and he's going to return. That's the basics of the gospel. And it's glorious every time. Breathe it in fresh every day. Paul is not afraid. He's not tired of reminding them of the gospel. He has not gotten tired of that. And he says, it is safe for you. Hebrews 6.19 uses this same word for safe to talk about we have a steadfast anchor for our souls. That's behind the veil. Hebrews 6 takes that same idea of being safe as like a ship that's being tossed all over the place but is anchored securely so that as the winds and waves toss, it's safe, it's secure. And he says, your regular ingesting, inhaling of the gospel message will keep you safe. It's your protection. So I would just encourage you that in every ministry, every gathering, every conversation that happens out here in the lobby, bring some aspect of the gospel into that conversation. Every small group. And demand that, search team, of whatever next pastor stands in this pulpit. Demand that of them. That they give you the gospel again and again and again and again and again because it's oxygen and you'll die without it. Number two, you watch for enemies. Look at verse two. So Paul's like, I've warned you about this before, but you need to, need to know that there are enemies that want to steal your joy, and you've got to guard it. There are enemies that want to steal you, swindle you out of your joy. He, looks, he says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So this is an emphatic kind of turn in the book, because he's been very kind and encouraging, and now he just, with like, Bold letters and a bunch of exclamation points. Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's got this ironic twist here because he's talking about Judaizers. Now, what Judaizers would do is the Judaizers would be people who were committed to the Jewish law. And so the Jewish law, they would come along behind the Christians, behind evangelists like Paul, and they would say, yeah, Jesus is great. We're glad that you see he's the Messiah. But he's not quite sufficient to bring you into the promises of God. Believing in Jesus alone is not quite enough to bring you into right standing with God. So you need to be circumcised. You need to obey the Old Testament law. And Paul is saying that those guys are dogs. They're evildoers. They are mutilators. Because they rob you of your confidence in Jesus Christ. They will swindle you of your joy. And you can't let them do it. They're trying to add to the work of Christ. They're trying to steal from him. I read about one con man named Count Victor Lustig. 
He lived from 1890 to 1947. Famous con man, maybe one of the greatest con men ever. In 1925, he came up with official French government stationery and then gathered a bunch of scrap metal dealers and told them that he had official authorization from the government to sell the Eiffel Tower. And he was taking bids on who would want to take this. And he put together this whole presentation. He was able to pull it off twice. This man sold the Eiffel Tower twice. That's pretty impressive. He made $100 bills and circulated them so successfully within the U.S. that a judge later commented that he feared this influx of fake bills could wobble the economy and the international confidence in the dollar. He also created what's called the Romanian box. It's a small box made of cedar wood with complicated rollers and brass dials, and Ludzik claimed that the contraption would print $100 bills. And so he would go to various criminal organizations and go, you can print $100 bills, and it was just a, it was just a fake, and he would sell them for $10,000 each. He uh, even swindled Al Capone on this trick. $46,000 for one of them, even. He escaped from the inescapable federal detention center. He fashioned a rope from bed sheets, cut through the bars, swung from the window like an urban Tarzan. When a group of onlookers stepped and pointed, the prisoner took a rag from his pocket and pretended to be a window cleaner. Landing on his feet, Ludzik gave the audience a polite bow and sprinted away. One Secret Service agent told him, Count, you are the smoothest con man that ever lived. He was so smooth that he could swindle people out of all kinds of things. And Paul is saying that you've got people like that here who look so good. They look so moral. Everything they say sounds right. But they'll swindle you out of your joy if you're not careful. They will look so godly, they'll use Bible even to swindle you out of your joy, to get you to add something to the gospel. But they can't get it without your consent. They can't get it without your consent. Don't consent to it. And then Paul talks about in verse 3, one of the ways that you can protect your joy is by remembering who you are. You live what you are. He says, they're the mutilators. They want to get you to submit to Jewish law. They want to just manage the flesh. But we're the true circumcision who've been, who have had the flesh removed. We worship the spirit, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Kind of like Mufasa says to Simba, remember who you are. You weren't brought to Christ by law-keeping. You were brought to Christ by the Spirit of God. And so you live by him and you put no confidence in the flesh. These are the marks of authenticity of a believer. Is that they don't put their confidence in external things or things that they do. They worship by the Spirit, not external rituals. They glory in Christ, meaning they rejoice in him, not their superior behavior. And they're truly circumcised in the heart and that they put no confidence in the flesh. Which brings us to the next section where Paul basically lays himself out. He's got this contrast. Those who are the mutilators, those who are the mutilation, who just want to manage the flesh. They just want to do sin management, image management. They just want to put makeup on the corpse. But we're the ones that are truly alive. We're the ones that are truly have been removed, have the flesh removed from us. And Paul goes, Paul holds himself up as exhibit A between these two things. There's those that have a godliness that looks good because of law keeping, and there's those of us that are truly godly by faith in Christ. And Paul goes, look at me. I'll be exhibit A. 
He says, you despise the flesh. Look at Paul. Here's what he says in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So if you want to compare resumes, he's like, my resume is better. My spiritual resume is better. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, verse 7, whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I had all the credentials. I checked all the boxes. I could beat these false teachers at any religious game they want to play. And I just, I think, in your handout there, just put some bullet points here, because we don't have time to go into each of these phrases and the significance of it. So let me just sort of try to bring that to today's language. These are the kinds of things that we might be tempted to put our confidence in, in our standing before God. This is what makes us acceptable before God. And Paul's like, here are the things that I could have put and did put my confidence in before I encountered Christ. One is upbringing and ritual, circumcised on the eighth day. My parents were careful to get me circumcised on just the right day. I grew up in the right home. I had the right upbringing. I had the right ritual done to me. Of the people of Israel, I had the right ethnicity and nationality. I came from the right family. Of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that stuck with the Davidic kingdom in the Old Testament, when the others, the other ten, left, Judah and Benjamin stuck with the Davidic promise, the Davidic king in the Old Testament. I was one of the prized, um, one of the prized tribes, so I have standing and pedigree. A Hebrew of Hebrews. <clears throat> patriotic pop and popular. He is the all-American boy, we might say it today. He is the model Hebrew, and he stands up for it, and he defends it, and he's held up. Everyone would recognize that he is the epitome of what it means to be a Hebrew. As to the law of Pharisee, I have intelligence and achievement. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, no one was more sincere than me. No one was more committed to the cause than me. In fact, I wanted to kill those who were any threat to us. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless, moral, morality and reputation. If there was anyone that could gain standing with God, that could come to the gates of heaven and go, I'm qualified, Paul goes, I would be qualified. These dogs, these false teachers, are trying to get you to add to your resume. They're trying to get you to earn a standing before God. And he's saying, dear Gentile believers in Philippi, if I couldn't make it, I was born into this thing. I won the religious game, and it's all rubbish. You're coming so late to the game, there's no hope of ever coming into a right standing with God. If I couldn't do it, no one can do it. And so we despise, you despise the flesh. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. My resume has been wrecked. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus showed up as I was going in my zeal to protect what I had earned, to protect God. And Jesus appeared, and he knocked me off this donkey, and he appeared to me, and he didn't reference anything on my resume. He said, you're persecuting me. Your list of credentials is my enemy, Paul. It's blinding you from me. And so he says, it's everything was lost. Everything on that list got in my way of seeing Jesus. 
Everything on that list that I thought God would be so impressed with kept me from God. And he uses this idea of profit and loss. Uh, We have a family meeting tonight as a church, and I'm going to lay out with them the giving, both the expenses and the income of our church, right? And you want your income to be more than your loss, right? Paul goes, I used to, before I met Christ, put all of these things in the gain category. I thought these were all godly good things. He's like, then I met Christ, and Christ wasn't impressed with any of those. So I move all of those to the loss category because they prevented me from seeing and trusting in Christ. They were things I was putting confidence in and keeping me from Jesus. So he says, indeed, I count everything a loss. I put it over in the loss category, and there's only one thing in the gain category, which is knowing Christ. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. On your outline there, you can see it for yourself. If I were to just boil this down, this is what Paul says. He says, I want the whole Christ. It's like like that cartoon, DuckTales. I don't know if you remember that. Scrooge McDuck. He's got the big vat. And what did he love to do? Dive into his money, right? And swim all over in it, right? And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is like, I'm going to strip down all of this other stuff, and I'm just going to explore the wealth of Christ. I want to know it all. Not just know it in my head, but I want to experience it all. Look what he says. I want Christ's lordship, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want Christ's ownership, that I may gain Christ. I want Christ's protection to be found in him. I want Christ's righteousness, a righteousness that comes from God and not from my own achievements. I want Christ's resurrection, the power of his resurrection. I want to experience that. I want to feel that. I want Christ's sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. I want Christ's death. I want to become like him in his death. And I want Christ's eternity. I want to spend eternity with him. I want the resurrection from the dead. And that somehow there is not that he has doubt that it will happen. He just doesn't know how it's going to happen. Right? It might, I might die here in this prison. I might die somehow. Like he's, he knows he's going to attain the, the resurrection of the dead. He just doesn't know how. So somehow I will attain the resurrection of the dead. So he puts the prophet law statement together. And then he realizes that when he encountered Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9, that because of a fallen world, all the price tags got switched on everything. That when Adam and Eve fell, we now are not able to see the true value of things anymore. We put such a high value on all the things on that first list, don't we? That's what matters. But someone switched the price tags. I remember my kids would always want to do that. Going, hey, Dad, we could make this, you know... We could make this really expensive coat $3 by taking it from this piece of candy, right? Like, there we go. They'll never, they'll never get it, right? You lock up to them. That's what's happened, is that in our fallen world, things have, the price tags have gotten switched. And Paul says, when I encountered the risen Christ, the price tags all got put back where they belong. The kingdom got flipped upside down. And he goes, I consider these rubbish, which is a pretty strong word in Greek. Consider it scuba alone. All of these things on this list, to put confidence in those things is excrement. That's what it is, dog excrement. That's what he says. 
this list is dog excrement. It's a loss. It doesn't help me at all. It's not worth putting any confidence in. But the things that you can put confidence in are that second list. Pursue it with all your heart. Many other things I'd love to share with you, but we need to move to the Lord's Supper here in in a moment. Remember, rejoicing in the Lord together is your supreme purpose. And my question for you today is, what is obscuring your view? What, like Paul, is sort of standing in the way is the thing that you really want to hold on to as confident? Paul in a prison cell is going, I've lost everything, and yet I've gained everything because I have Christ. What is it that would terrify you to lose? Like, if you lost that, you really would be devastated. That might need to be the thing that goes. That might be the thing obscuring you from really having Christ. would encourage you today, wherever you're at, to look at Christ, who he is and what he's done, and take a long, hard look at your heart. What do I want? What do I want? And as you look at this list here, at someday, someday we'll be gathered around at your funeral, and someone will read your obituary. If someone were to read your obituary and then read this sec- section of Philippians, go, yeah, that matches up. Their life has been lived as one who counts everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, having suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us such a clear purpose. That we are made to know you, to love you, to be glory, to glory in you. I pray for my friends here that they would see Christ as being worth everything. And God, help us to be careful of the con men who would want to come and just take 1% of our confidence from Christ. Just put a little bit here, diversify our portfolio. And Lord, I pray that we would see that for what it is that we would call it out as dogs, evildoers, the mutilation. And that we would want, we would be willing for the loss of all things compared to knowing Christ. I pray for my friends that you would do the hard work that needs to be done in their hearts right now to make our confidence solely in Christ. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.